Hey, it's Broken Office Chair, a podcast produced by Alternatives. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native, first-generation Salvadoran Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to speak candidly about their experiences as people of color in their various professions. In the episodes, they'll address topics such as issues in the nonprofit sector, racial equity, DEI in practice, and much, much more. So stay tuned. All right. So today I am joined by Jamal Cannon, executive director and founder of The Block. Thanks for joining me. I'm so excited to be here. To kick it off, why don't you tell us a little bit about how your organization came to be? Absolutely. So uh, I moved to Chicago to help start a school on the west side. And as the first action to connect with young people in this brand new school, I decided I was going to be the basketball coach. It was the first sport that the kids had a chance to play. And I started the basketball tryouts with 70 kids and I cut 58 of them immediately. And how did that not break your heart? You know, in the, in the, at the time I'm thinking like, I have a high bar, I have a high standard. That's, that's my internal thinking about this. But then you recognize that kids are coming to me for a connection. They're coming to me because they want to be a part of something that I'm leading. Mm -hmm. They want to be with each other and better themselves. And they see me as a, they see this team as a way to do that. And I just told them no. Um, and that did start to weigh on me. Um, mm-hmm. And I was a national champion boxer, uh, and uh, kids were telling me I should start a boxing club, and I didn't know how that made any sense, but they were persistent that this is what we want in this school. Um, so I started a boxing club in my classroom with 12 kids. We um, had boxing lessons and just kind of hung out after school. I checked their grades at the end of the school year, and they had a 3.18 GPA. Thought that was pretty good. Let's do it again. We got bigger the next year, 20 kids. Uh, the same result, about a 3.1, 3.2 GPA. Grades were going up. Kids were happier. Um, it changed their relationship with the school. Uh, so I decided, let's get a little bigger the next year. Uh, and we had we invited kids from around the community to show up, and 80 kids started coming to the program, and the school made us shut it down. There were uh, too many kids coming to it for it to be an after-school program. It presented in their mind. Uh, a safety and security risk. Um, so I decided I was going to leave my job at the end of the school year to start a nonprofit, The Block. Um, that year in 2017, we... I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm like, that's wild. A safety and security risk yeah. as opposed to having kids do what? And, and, you know, we think about the need for holistic resources for young people, the need to listen to the 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 needs of people within the community. In my mind, that's what we were doing. Right. But I... I, I can't explain the decision-making behind saying that we have too many kids that want to be here. Um, to me, that is a, is, is a function of a quality space for a school. We want schools to be resources for young people and communities. I think one of the things that happens within schools is there's competition between schools when there should be co- cooperation. So when we have 80 kids coming from different schools to be a part of this program, there's no school that gets to say that we are the owner of these results. Um, I, I, you know, the, the competition for people, the competition for results. I, I think that may play a part, play a part in it, and that these aren't our kids. When in reality, I'm looking at all kids as our kids. This is our city. So, I left my job at the end of that year. Started the block. We worked with 120 young people that year, and we started realizing that there were needs that weren't being met outside of the sport of boxing, outside of recreation. So, uh, we. 
uh, started an academics program. We started taking kids on field trips. In 2020, we got a building. Uh, we started a food pantry uh, in the height of the pandemic to make sure our neighbors uh, had enough food to eat. A virtual learning lab, uh, enrichment programming like photography and coding. Basically, we want to meet kids where they are. We want to be talking to kids who want to fight. And then we want to make sure they have all the resources and opportunities that, that kids deserve, but Westside kids are often denied. The, there, there's a lot coming up for me right now, especially because, so I grew up in Chicago, right? And one of the things that I loved about Chicago was when I was growing up, there was a community. And one of the things that we used to do, the West Loop used to be very underdeveloped. And um, they would find warehouses that nobody was in and we would throw parties there on the weekend. That sounds like a time. It, it was a great time. <laughs> it was a great time. And it was from all over the city. And so that's why I'm like, to me, this is wild that we would shut down something that kids want that's in an adult supervised environment. And that's exactly what I think would keep them out of trouble as opposed to some of the stuff I was doing. <laughs> and, and not only keep them out of trouble, but get them into good. When you, when you talk about those memories, you know, the, the, the warehouse turning into a, a, a party, you're creating core memories of childhood right? that I mm -hmm. think all kids deserve access to. And we are perfectly fine saying that some kids aren't going to get it. But the things that you just remember, you look forward to, the, the cutting up that you did with your friends, mm -hmm. to do that in an environment that's supported by adults and that's loved by the community, that, that changes the way you feel growing up. And I think every kid needs that. We used to also do these things. Uh, Harold Washington Library, everybody would congregate at the, once it closed. There used to be a Burger King across the street. And I, th I think it was a Burger King. It was something, but it was a parking lot. And I promise you, there were over 100 kids there. Kind of like what just happened in, what was it, Millennium Park? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what we used to do. And it was Sunday evenings when the library closed. And it was just uh, breaking battles, ciphers, like that sort of thing. And so folks were just having a really good time. And they let us do that. Absolutely. And, and now it, it feels like any time, particularly youth of color, are in the same place at one time, uh, it, the feeling is we don't want them there. Right. Right. And then it becomes an act of subversion instead of an act of community. And when it becomes an act of subversion, then we see uh, situations where where uh, unruliness breaks out, where violence can break out, because the intent of being there has to change because they're not wanted in those spaces. Uh, and if we make it clear that young, we, we love our young people, we want them in spaces, we invite them here, we thought about them beforehand, uh, we can create a, uh, we can create more spaces where they can go and be themselves and have positive outcomes. It's really interesting because it mirrors to me what's been happening with housing in Chicago because all of these places that we used to hang out in were underdeveloped from a housing perspective. The West Loop had no folks in there. Like, like I said, it was warehouses. It had like maybe one restaurant. Um, that part of downtown didn't have as many of those like really expensive condos. And so as folks with a ton of money move in, the uh, us who lived here, who've been here, have been getting pushed out and then no other resources given. And, and intentionally pushed out because having a bunch of young people of color hanging around a certain space may not be as conducive to your property's value, value right. size and as you want them to be. Because obviously we're going to do something that they don't want us to do, right? That's, that's the assumption. It can't be that we're just hanging out having fun. And it's like, you know, it's like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Almost. If we if we're going to treat a group of people as if bad things are going to happen, we're going to set up a society that is that is around that assumption. We almost guarantee bad things are going to happen. Right. 
Yeah, because we leave no other option for folks, right? And if you think about it, if you look at Wrigleyville, it's all these white folks congregating, and nobody calls the cops and says, hey, there's 50 white people in front of my house. I'm concerned. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be constant calls. <laughs> I was at the playground with my son, and I... It, and I heard some parents talking about some, you know, sixth, seventh grade kids who were at the playground, uh, talking about them as if there was they were bad or wrong or there to cause harm. And in reality, they were really just in a place that didn't make a whole lot of sense for them. They were in a place that wasn't built for them. And because they're in a place on this playground that wasn't built for them, everything that they do seems out of place. Everything that they do seems wrong. And if we would just take a second and think, how do we build a space for these people to be that makes sense to them so that they're not you know, swinging off of monkey bars? Yeah, so they're, so they're, <laughs> what do they call it? So they're not swinging off of monkey bars in front of toddlers. If we could just build a space that's made for them, everything that they do then is going to become functional and good if we if we put them in a space that we've created for them. And we are not creating spaces for young people of color in the city of Chicago, and they are existing in places that weren't made for them, and everything that they do is being viewed as is hostile, as violent, uh, as dysfunctional, when really they just need a space. Agreed. The space happened to be behind my house this weekend. Yeah, they were going on. <laughs> some they a bunch of people parked their cars behind my house, um, and there uh, I live on the on the west side, and um, they had music going. They, my partner was like, I want to go kick it. <laughs> so I was like, we don't know, folks. <laughs> We're going to bed. But, uh, yeah, no, that's what they did. Uh, it was behind my house. It was just lined up. It was a um, closed street. Mm-hmm. And so they had lo- and they had brought out speakers and just were parked out there chit-chatting. Nothing major until about 4 or 5 in the morning. My goodness. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> folks need that. And I it definitely, and so much has gone away. Because I think about some of those hangouts, too, like, the roller rinks and things like that that we used to have that have also gone away. Mm-hmm. And so those spaces are being replaced by nonprofits, but then we're also under-resourced and not able to provide services to everybody, right? And, and those spaces are often replaced by nonprofits that have a particular idea about what is wanted or needed by a community that isn't always informed by that community, mm-hmm. right? If, we, if we're really going in and listening to communities and providing the things or helping to create the things that they're asking for, we're going to get a stronger outcome than if we descend on a community with a set of objectives and ideas that comes from somewhere else, because that somewhere else often isn't connected to the people of the community. So I, I really think it's important that uh, in addition to you know equitable funding, that we think about what it is our community wants, what is it that our community is really asking for, um, within this space so that we can provide it as opposed to bringing our own ideas into it. And that's something I'm particularly sensitive about because I'm not from Chicago. Uh, so I can't just show up and say that, you know, I grew up in this experience and this is what's necessary. I have to listen uh, in order to come up with anything that's worthwhile. Also, though, if you are from Chicago, it still matters what part of Chicago you're from. You can't just come into new communities. We're very... Um, we have very strong feelings about that. And not only strong feelings, but diff- completely different lived experiences mm-hmm. from even one West Side community to the next. <laughs> there are changes within Yes. Um, I want to go back to the thing about things being um, listening to the community. And I feel like some of it is not on the nonprofits, but the way funding is being done. Because if you look at a lot of government grants in particular, but just but even private philanthropy as well, they already dictate what the program should be like. 
before you even apply. And so if you want, sometimes you're making the decision between cutting positions at your nonprofit, which are folks from the communities that are typically impacted, or modeling the program according to what the funder says, which may not be coming from the community because funders go after evidence-based programming that's typically about five to 10 years behind whatever time they did the research study, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So a question that I have is how do we change that dynamic? Right. How do we change the dynamic of funder-driven programming uh, going into communities? And it, it seems to be happening. I can only speak to my experience, mm-hmm. but it seems to be happening to communities of color, uh, to uh, communities that have been historically disenfranchised, uh, because people have ideas about what those communities uh, can and, and should be. Uh, so, how do we change this funder-driven nonprofit sector? Uh, I think one of the things that has to start happening, and maybe it's unfair to put the onus on on um, on the people being impacted. But I think one of the things that has to start happening is we do need to be clear uh, about this dynamic. I think there are funders who actually don't know that they're imposing or, or haven't been told that they're imposing. Uh, and I think communicating this more clearly uh, to the philanthropic landscape uh, that there are needs of the community that they haven't been hearing. If they do have a a desire for a community impact, that's that's a, a call that they will hear. Um, something that I've been really intentional about is giving feedback to funders. Uh, when they're asking us to do something that is uh, harmful or or not aligned with our goals, just making sure that I'm saying that and I'm saying it clearly. And there are some people who just can't see it. <laughs> yeah. just like Some people who just can't see it. Uh, but I'm finding that there is room for discussion within these conversations. There's room for discussions within our dynamic that I think we need to maximize so that so that we can, we need to make this field better for the people who come after us. I think, and I talked to you a little bit about this before, I think there's been a lot of progress because I think um, as recently as like six or seven years, we couldn't have these conversations with funders. Um, there is, we had an experience, this was uh, funny, where somebody reached out to us and they were like, we would love to fund your programming. We just need you to drop any reference of restorative justice from your language. <laughs> we're like, no, we're we, not. We don't fund you, but don't be who you are. Exactly. Yes. And they're like, our board is not ready to receive this kind of language. And I'm like, that is like the most PC language in my opinion, right? <laughs> um, and so, and we, we obviously said no. Um, and so I think Philanthropy has done this thing of recognizing there's an issue where they're hiring folks with more understanding to have these conversations with the nonprofits, but they're not trickling up to their board mm-hmm. because these f- foundations were not set up to actually make social impact. Yeah, that, that's true. And when we, when we talk about like hiring people who have a greater understanding of what's happening on the ground, one of the things that's happening is they view themselves as a buffer between the nonprofit and mm-hmm. the board when I think they should view themselves more as translators and people who are going to uh, impact the board, impact their understanding uh, to help co- to help bring them along closer to where they are in their own understanding. Because if we only end up with buffers um, and nobody's doing the change on the other side and, and making the pushes on the other side of that conversation, then you know we are functionally going to be in the same place that we were before. It's great that we have these staff people, these staff people on on the board, on the people on the staff of of funders um, that can uh, that can change a conversation for us uh, but we need people on these staffs to start changing mindsets as well they have access 
I, I feel like some of them do try to do that. And it brings me to the larger thing that's going on in the U.S. right now where there's this like backlash against these types of initiatives because folks don't want to take accountability because it feels uncomfortable to be like, hey, I'm part of the problem. And so I wonder how long it would take for that change because I feel like philanthropy, the landscape has really been changing in the last five years. So how long will it take for their boards to catch up with those changes is the question. Not rhetorical one, not one for you to answer because yeah, <laughs> you just looked at me like, nah. <laughs> But that actually brings me to something that you've been doing, right? You've been act really active on social media, trying to be really outspoken about these issues. How did that come about? It, really what I'm doing is trying to take conversations that I have been having behind closed doors and also conversations that I've been having with funders and broaden them out. Because I think there is an audience for, uh, for changing the philanthropic landscape. Uh, even amongst philanthropists, I think there's an audience for a lot of these messages. They may not agree 100%. With what I say, but they understand that some progress needs to be made, particularly along the lines of, of racial equity and listening to the people on the ground. Um, so I I recognize that there was a need to, to spread this message beyond the people that I had immediate access to it. I just started saying things online uh, about the, what I had seen in the philanthropic landscape, what I had experienced as a black leader uh, within this sector, and what I think needs to be happening so that uh, so that so that our world is better, so that the sector is stronger and is actually uh, working to solve complex issues as opposed to placate them and working to listen to leaders on the ground as, a, as opposed to control them. If you're enjoying this episode, we have a few upcoming events that will be perfect for you. Join Alternatives and Broken Office Chair on October 5th at Chicago United for Equity for our second Cocktails and Complicity event. Guest speakers Ioka Samuels and Leslie Honoré from Broken Office Chair Season 1 will join Bessie in discussing the complex dynamics that perpetuate inequality in the nonprofit sector, such as being a woman of color in nonprofit leadership the nonprofit industrial complex, the intersection of capitalism and philanthropy, and much more. Come enjoy a cocktail, network with nonprofit friends, and engage in these much needed conversations. The link to RSVP will be in the show's notes. Have you been personally impacted by a toxic nonprofit? Do you have a nonprofit horror story that you're dying to share? We're right here with you. Join Alternatives for an in-person open mic night where nonprofit friends can gather and share horror stories about navigating the nonprofit industrial complex. Come prepared with your favorite story, poem, or song about the terrors of funder site visits, annual appeals, audits, and more. We invite you to share a drink with colleagues and revel in the joys of nonprofit life. The link to RSVP will be in the show notes. I want to uh, zone in on something that you said, your experience as a black leader. And I think that's really important because one of the things that we try to highlight, you know, all those stats show that um, even though folks of color are the majority of our staff, the leadership is still disproportionately white, you know. And so one of the things I'm trying to, I would like to see is more um, 
exposure around the experiences of leaders of color. And so can you talk about what you've experienced as a black leader? I, I, I think I have had an overwhelmingly positive experience within my realm because of a level of connection that I can have with black people and people of color that, uh, that I hope my organization intersects with. I, I think it, it has allowed me to have a perspective on the work uh, that, uh, that centers the people that we love and care about. It allows me to approach this work every day with a, a palpable love uh, for the people that we're impacting and an understanding of how these external structures can, uh, can impact the way that they live their day to day. I'm a black kid from Kentucky. Um, and recognizing how the education system, the medical system, the food system, the political system uh, sometimes felt pointed at me as opposed to um, in support of me. Uh, so really having empathy from that perspective, I think has given me an advantage within this field uh, to, to make the impact that we're looking to make. Doesn't mean that it doesn't come with challenges. Black leaders get less unrestricted funding than other leaders. Um, we are recognized as being closer to the ground of the issues that funders say they care about, but we're not trusted to execute the missions that funders say they care about at the same level. And I don't want that to be the case uh, for the leaders that come after me to the same extent that it was the case for me. I walked into an industry that it felt like people were bending over backwards to be what funders wanted them to be as opposed to being themselves because that was what was going to be best for their community. So I felt a responsibility uh, to speak on that uh, and to actually try to help funders uh, understand and move forward in ways that were going to help them and their impact uh, to communities. Uh, I have been privileged to connect with funders who really want to better themselves in the way that they do their work. I've been privileged to, um, to, to be supported by black philanthropists like Liz and Don Thompson, who gave our organization a million dollars because they recognized the need uh, to fund uh, black leaders in the education realm. So I, I think being a black leader puts us in a particular position of impact, both on the community level and on the philanthropic system level. Uh, where we could speak with authenticity uh, to to both groups uh, in a way uh, that's going to move our missions forward. I really think that you've benefited from it, which is a really weird thing to say from not having the um, not having grown through the nonprofit system. You just came in and did your own thing, because what I've experienced um, from folks is so much trauma. And um, you basically learn to be quiet over time because of the impact it has on your programming when you speak up and you piss off the wrong funder. And we actually had a situation where we advocated for programming during the pandemic and, um, and thought the funder was approaching it really wrong and they yanked their money. Mm. Lucky for us, it wasn't like a huge impact, but there were, there it was large enough where for some other organizations it would have had huge impact. And so have you talked to folks about what their experience has been in the nonprofit and how that keeps them from speaking up? It, it, the, the experience that I hear 
is racial trauma. Yeah. Right. It's racialized trauma within a particular power dynamic, but that that translates across all fields, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that translates into the corporate world. I I started off in education, had the same power dy- racial power, power dynamics in education, um, to the nonprofit field, to sports, like in in every in every realm, there is a level of racial trauma and power dynamics that people either like that people have to navigate so the the racialized trauma of the nonprofit sector is real uh it is something that uh, people should not experience uh, it's uh and, and it impacts the way that we believe in the power of our own voices um it's something that i encountered for the first time uh within the sector when i was Actually, out of town, I was at a conference. I was uh, shared a taxi uh, with a man, uh, and uh, we were coming from the same speech, and uh, he was asking about the work, and there was a story that I had told that I decided this moment I was going to stop telling it um, because I was telling the story of a young man who I was going to pick him up on a Saturday morning. His whole block was taped off uh, with police tape, and he, when he came out to my car, he told me, there had been a shootout in, in his alley the day, uh, that, that morning, and he looked out the window and he saw his friend had been shot, and and he he realized that had he not had he not known that I was coming to pick him up later that day, he might have gone out there with him. Uh, and in my mind, this is a story of one, like there's a lot of trauma this young man is grappling with and, and trying to make good decisions, but also all he needed was an option, right? All he needed was an option of something like positive for himself to do that was gonna gonna help him make a stronger decision. But I'm, and it's a sad story. Uh, but I look in this man's eyes and he's thrilled. It's like he's watching a movie, and I didn't know what to do with that. And then he wants me to go tell this story to other people. And I'm at a like these are people who, like they can they can write a check for my budget. And it's not an accounting error for them. Like it's it's nothing to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm having to make a decision as to like, am, is this the relationship that I want to set up? Um, and I ended up not giving many feedback, but also not going to that next meeting because I, I, I didn't know how to handle I didn't know how to handle that situation. Uh, but the decision that you have to make between speaking to people in a way that is affirming to your community and getting funded is, I think, one that is constant and real, uh, and and one that is particularly colored by. Uh, the racial history and racial present of, of of the country we're living in. It's a very intentional choice for us to not tell those types of stories. Um, trauma porn, that's the term for it. I was um, teaching um, for a little while and I was bringing one of my, one of our program participants with me because he was interested. It was a graduate level program. And um, so he was coming to class with me and participating, and they told on him. Um, the students told on him. And um, so I was asked to stop bringing him to class with me. And I asked him for permission to tell his story because he was um, formerly homeless and was thinking about going back to school and really turning his life around. So I went back and told the story to the students, and I was like, he was here to see if this was the next step that he wanted to take. And their response was, well, why didn't you tell us? It would have been okay for him to be here. 
And I'm like, why do I have to expose his trauma for you to accept that, for you to decide it's acceptable for him to be in your space? When you can feel bad for him, it's okay for you, for him to be in your space. But for him to enter your space as an equal, that was not acceptable to you. Absolutely. And and the relationship that we get set up with when we're constantly using those stories is one where people, again, they feel bad, they feel pity, and they give. And when you pity someone, you don't necessarily want the same thing for them as if you love them. Right. right? You don't want the same thing for uh, kids that you're supporting because they're poor or because they're traumatized that you want for people that you support because because you love them. Uh, and, and one of the questions that you had asked me was, when was the first time I got my heart broken? Um, having that realization and then continuing in the conference, having, the, having discussions with other leaders about this very weird thing that I felt the first time I'd ever felt it mm-hmm. um, and having get an agreement from other leaders and then watching them go on stage and continue to do that thing was one of the first times I had my heart broken because I'm realizing they know what it is that they're doing they know that this is trauma porn they know that they're setting up a power dynamic right now as they're speaking I know they know this because they've expressed this to me in the conversations that we've had and they got on stage and did it anyway and I understand that there is a way that things are done in the nonprofit realm, but to me, I think what hurt the most about it was recognizing that they weren't playing the game to change the game, but they were playing the game to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to win in this deeply racist game uh, and leaving in the same state for me and everybody else that came after. Uh, and I, I think that to me was the, the lack of understanding of the need to change this dynamic and their role within it because I would rather lose. I, 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 I would rather lose. Lose the battle, win the war. It, the Define the battle and the war in this one. In this one, lose the battle would be you may not get that funder, mm-hmm. but you're doing more towards education, towards the long game and the long yeah. strategy, right? Because we, we do the same thing. Because imagine if all of us decided to stop doing trauma porn. Funders would have to think of a different way to feel good and decide who they want to give dollars to. But as long as folks are participating in this game, there's no incentive for folks to change. Absolutely. So on the on the on the one end where I understand that people are traumatized by this realm, I think there are understandings that we have to have. There are reckonings that we need to have internally to say, like, there are some things that we're not gonna play along with and, mm-hmm. and really stand firm in those and know who we are as people of color within the sector. Um, and and I to to see that co- to see that constantly bucked, to see uh, that go out of the window so often so that people can get that next check is is something that I am finding myself having decreasing patience for. What, the first time you get your heart broken, right? We were, t- we were chatting about that. And I think one of the things that's also interesting for me is that I think folks of color carry their same survival instinct into this workplace. And it plays out in different ways because I, I think I mentioned to you that my story was that when I finally got to see, like peek behind a curtain and see the decision makers and those, of, uh, those folks that look like us that finally got to the table, they were making the same decisions and using the same language that we were advocating against. And I think what it came down to is that it took so much work and sacrifice to get to that table that they didn't want to lose that seat. But for me, I'm like, what's the point in you having that seat if you're not going to do anything with it, right? And so 
I love to challenge when I was uh, working as a teacher, challenge my students or um, as an uh, ED, like what are your values? Because they will be challenged in this line of work. And I feel like the more that you move up and the more exposure you get and the more people you talk to, the more they will be challenged. And, and what is the thing that you're that's going to allow you to sleep with at, sleep at night? Another thing you said uh, during that time was to decide those values before they're challenged. Decide exactly. those values before, before it comes up. And I think that's such a powerful necessity that, mm-hmm. that to you know that, that that really made me think about my what are what are the values that I'm going to stand on no matter what what will I accept and what will I not uh, understanding that before the situation presents itself is is huge and I wonder how much of that thinking people have done before coming into this realm you know what what check will you not accept what check will you send back what will you not do uh, for money for publicity for an introduction what are the things that you know, what are your non-negotiables for yourself and your organization? I think what's also really hard, and we had this conversation, when we decided to roll out uh, policy and advocacy as a department for our organization, and one of the first stances that we took was defund police. And um, we got we had, we had a board member resign. We had to get different people involved uh, um, on board with it, right? One of the things is that it's easy for me to turn down a check publicity or ego or whatever those things but sometimes those decisions mean that you have to how does it impact that program how many kids are you not serving because of it and so the conversation we had was like we didn't know how folks would receive our defund police platform right so what if it means people stop funding us and we have to shut down and I remember one of my board members said to me when we decided to go in this direction he was like what you're doing can get you guys shut down and it is still the right thing to do and so we had the support of our board which I think a lot of people do not to continue to move in this direction and obviously we were scared but what has happened since we've done that is we've actually grown and we didn't realize so many folks would be ready to get those messages we just had to try I think people don't realize that there were a lot of wonderful people in this realm and you had to be speaking to them and you had to and you got more support and and you came out stronger because of it because you're walking in the direction of your values with conviction mm-hmm. when you walk in the direction of your values with conviction you find other people who are going to do that same thing with you and i and we we have this like people want to be so politically correct and and soft on their on their phrasing of things because they don't want to piss anybody off uh, but the fact of the matter is when you put your flag in the ground people see what you stand for and they're going to gravitate towards that and i want more people to realize that and I want people to make that hard decision, like decisive, not like, oh, this kind of feels good. Let me let me try this out. Put my foot over here. Put my foot over here and figure it out. No, I want you to decide, like draw that hard line. Who and are you? Who? Yes. Who are you? And are, is this the thing that you're standing for? Right. It's um, it makes me think of like when those little black social media squares in terms of Black Lives Matters uh, were happening after George Floyd was killed, it was really easy for folks to post on social media, but they were not having the difficult conversations. They were not changing their practices. They were still supporting the same problematic politicians or the same problematic businesses. And so it's really easy to just like talk something theoretically, but when your actual decision-making and your behavior has to change, that's when folks don't want to get aligned, right? And we had to do it out loud. We had to do it in public in front of people where it really matters. I, the number of conversations that I've had behind closed doors with other leaders and then walked out and seen something completely different has been astounding to me. So really deciding who we are and being that person. Because people are going to show up to be with you. People are going to show up to support you as long as you're being clear about who you are. 
I feel like this podcast is also a really good example. Of that. <laughs> we you know we decided to do it, and folks are showing up and and speaking their truth, and I'm loving it. So and, you know, this it, it reminds me of. So I lived in Phoenix, Arizona for a couple of years, and I don't know what it was about where I was living, but there was always like a car broken down on the side of the street, like somebody out there pushing. Uh, and I I noticed uh, actually my car is my car. <laughs> so actually yeah oh i was padding the story for myself so my car would break down a lot when i was living in phoenix um and i know if, if i sat on the side of the road and like hoped that somebody would stop and help me push it would never happen but if i started pushing myself like people would would veer off the side of the road and start helping me push i think of the same way in terms of walking in your values if you just like if you sit and you hope that people are going to agree with values that you haven't expressed and started walking in clearly, it's not going to happen. But when you get out and you start living and you start doing the work to live with those values, people are going to show up and join along with you. I joke about this a lot because we, my, I love my team and my board and everybody's great. And um, we, we've taken so many chances over the last couple of years that I, I told them at one point because I was getting really nervous about our growth. I felt like I made everybody swim into the deep, like jump into the deep water with me and then swim. And we're all just like, all right, cool. We're in the deep water. Now we're, mm-hmm. we're, where do you go? What do we do? And everybody's just kind of trusting the process right, and right. figure out that we're going to get come out at the other end of it, right? Still in the deep water right but, now. But, but, <laughs> but it's easy to know that, is, you know, they know what hands they're in because they understand the values that, that we're acting within. They, they understand the lens that we, we pro, through which we process things. But the responsibility of that, mm-hmm. how do you deal with that? How do I deal with that? Yeah. I was hoping to get some tips from you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, w- one of the things that uh, I'm working on for myself is, like, speaking with clarity for everybody within the organization so that, um, you know, things don't have to trickle up to me, but people understand uh, with such clarity what is the best move that we can be making right now, how do we act within our values within any given moment, uh, and, and how do we react to, to change in times? People can make that at every level of the organization. That's 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 a push that I know I need to make as a leader. So it's something I'm figuring out myself, like how to handle that responsibility of being values based, uh, walking with a sense of purpose, uh, and and bringing along, uh, bringing bringing other people along who are trusted in the mission. So anything you got for me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think for me one of the biggest things is also like mentorship. And, like, allowing others to have not just learn from my experiences, but also take part in those experiences with me as much as possible so I can get them that exposure and so that it, they don't get their heart broken, right, when they all of a sudden see what's behind the curtain. They, all, they, they can see it all along and learn those skills and that set them up for success. And just having really um, honest conversations. We kicked off a leadership pipeline um, a couple of years ago. And because, you know, when I took over my organization, it's predominantly white. And now we're predominantly black and brown. And so we, we have a responsibility to our folks to develop them and allow to give them the skills to be informed decision makers. And when I talk about informed is who are the parties that have the opportunity to make decisions about you? And how do you interact with those parties as well, right? And one of the things I talked about with them is that the truth of the matter is this job is just going to be so much harder for you. Hmm. It's, it's just is. You're going to have to be more credentialed. You're going to have to be more experienced. You're going to have to be more well-spoken. Because we try to shelter them against all of those things. And But when I put you in front of a funder, there's no more, no more sheltering, right? Mm-hmm. And the 
no matter how much I like to think that attire and presentation and all these things don't matter, they do when you get in front of certain people, right? And so you have to know that that's the case. And you can decide whether you want to play the game or not, but you need to know that that's going to be weighed against you. And so really just kind of walking them through, uh, for me, the responsibility is trying to make sure that there's as many seats for folks on the table as possible and also trying to give them the skill set to use that seat wisely and not just do what has happened before we got here. I I love what you said about uh, understanding that it's a part of the game. Like when people don't know all the aspects of the game that they're playing or or that it's even a game, right? When it comes to uh, what am I wearing? How am I talking? How am I presenting myself? Those are things that is perfectly fine to ignore and show up completely authentically as yourself. You should understand, right? You should understand that how how you're going to be read by other people it's unfair and we need to change that um but don't go into it blind not understanding the 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 ramifications uh, all, all the ramifications of it we we need to work urgently so that that is not the case i i uh, want to center people who act speak dress outside of the norm outside of the quote-unquote norm um so that others can see that they are just as or if not more capable as everyone else who conforms to these standards that got made up without us in mind, period. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but know what the game is that you're playing. I, that's, a, that's a tough thing for me to say out loud. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and because that you have to know what it is to decide how you, how you are going to participate if you want to participate, right. right? And so I feel like that's a lot of the stuff I had to learn as I, on the ground, I had to learn once folks didn't like me, once folks didn't think I was capable and things like that, once um, folks started reading me a certain way that I didn't mean to come across. And so I am just more transparent about that now. And it's wild because when you think about, you know, nobody would expect Mark Zuckerberg to show up in a suit. Right. right. Like these, <laughs> these, or even a tech startup bro. You know, yeah. there, there are expectations that are placed on us as leaders of color. Um, uh as leaders of color that aren't placed on anybody else. Uh, and and people don't even realize. It's like they don't even know that it's nonsense. That mm-hmm. that a suit doesn't mean you're smart. That standard English doesn't mean you're smart. That, that these things all put together um, only show a proximity to whiteness. And they don't show um, actual competence and ability to get a job done. Um, that's something I've been speaking about online a little bit more, and I find I, I get no more vitriol than when I'm talking about standard English grammar or or, uh, or the standards of professionalism that don't have actually have anything to do with performance because people hold so tightly to those because they believe if they just do these things, then they'll have a better shot. I, and the other, the other side of it that folks don't talk about as much is that, so I've always just shown up to work in sweatpants. I feel like I can't think if I'm in proper clothes. And I'm more effective if I'm comfortable. And I actually had a young Latina tell me that I was disappointing to her because there weren't a lot of Latinas in leadership that she has seen, and she just expected that me being in a leadership position would show up better as a better role model for people than how I was showing up in my sweatpants. Mm. And so another piece that people don't even think about is that sometimes it's not even coming from the white folks or the funders. It's coming from, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because we all have that ingrained idea of what this professionalism or success looks like. And I've encountered it many times since then from folks of color, but that was the first time that it really stood out. I had to unlearn it myself. And I think it was all, it was 
living on the West Side, working with West Side youth, that really made me realize that oh, they don't talk. Well, they're saying they're wrong. It's just different. It's just different from what I grew up with, and it, and this kid is just as smart as I am, or as I was when I was their age. Um, they they're gonna dress differently. They're gonna uh, speak differently. Um, and and it has absolutely nothing to do with their ability to write code, right? <laughs> or, or 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 their ability to decipher. And and I can understand them just fine. Um, they and when I started recognizing people doing things like correcting grammar that they understood perfectly well. Right, um, correct in forms of B when I already understand what it is you're saying. Probably better because you, you said it the way you did than had you used standard English. Um, I, I realize that these are purely cultural bits that have nothing to do with being understood um, and everything to do with conforming to uh, co conforming to the standards that were set up uh, in order to show that we didn't belong there in the first place. One of the things I wanted to go back to is that you talked about the racial trauma being across everything, and that just brought it up for me. And I think one of the uh, reasons that nonprofit hits so hard is because you expect it to be different. This is supposed to be about community and helping others, and you just expect it to be different. And that's why I, we talk quite a bit about heartbreak and nonprofit because it, you have this idealistic relationship with it until you ex you get exposed to it. Hmm. I I I can I kind of agree with that. Um, I I I can't say that I'm ever surprised by racism, whether it's overt or systemic or covert or microaggressions, um, because. It's like, why would we expect? At what point should we have come to expect a fish to know their way? Uh, when we are a sector that has been dictated by uh, predominantly wealthy white folks, there has never been a reason for them to turn a mirror on their own practices because they're the controlling interest of, of the sector. Um, and there hasn't been an interest in folks to tell them things because of the, uh, because of the negative ramifications that could come from that. Uh, so we're asking a fish to know that they're wet when we expect things to be different within the nonprofit realm. I think, you know, coming from Kentucky, coming through education and, and uh, working a little bit in a legal system before uh, before becoming a teacher, um, started. I, I I guess I expect things to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> the little the, we all get a little jaded over time, yeah, but but not not bad in a way that they're never going to get better. Yeah, right? I I I I expect things to get better. I know, and I believe I can make things better. Maybe I'm foolish. In that I, sense, I always say you can't do this work without hope. Yeah, and, and some and some hope is naivety, but <laughs> <laughs> but I I believe that this is a, a sector that can get better. Uh, we if we make things better, if we if we decide to decide who we are before that time comes, decide what our values are, and stand on them and communicate those clearly. Uh, I I don't think that we're forever stuck in this shitty realm as it is right now. I think. Uh, that there are steps that are that are being taken that are going to continue and accelerate. They're going to make this a more equitable space for all of us. On that note, 
What takeaways would you want folks to have? I, I'd, I'd hate to just steal the one you gave me. <laughs> but that's how I'm feeling right now. It really struck my spirit when you said, uh, determine your values, you know, determine your values ahead of time before you end up in that situation. I, I think also uh, believe in the potential for change, even from people that you don't necessarily relate to. When we talk about funders, uh, when we talk about the larger organizations that are making decisions about our community, really believe in, in the humanity of them as well uh, to make the changes that we know need to be made on our level. Believe in their intention. Believe that they want uh, your community to be stronger in the ways that you hope that they are and communicate with them from that perspective. Uh, when I'm talking to you as if I expect you uh, to, to love our community uh, and, I, and I have feedback to give to you that is going to require you to change something fundamental about, about what it is that you're doing, I need to do so from, a, from an angle of belief. I need to do so from a place of love uh, that is going to move the ball forward so that my community can be stronger. All right. So where can you be found online? All right. So if you're interested in the organization, go to theblockchicago.org. That's the B-L-O-C, chicago.org. Uh, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, at Jamal Cannon. Hit me up on LinkedIn as well, Jamal Cannon. Uh, I think that's all. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Hey, this is a great time. Thanks for having me. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook. If you want to keep up with Bessie, you can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Bessie underscore Alcantara. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives Executive Director Bessie Alcantara. It's produced, researched, and edited by Catherine Bess and Deanna Phillips. Thanks for listening.